morning again. If you would turn with me in your Bibles to our sermon text this morning, which is Psalm 84. We have been working our way through the Psalms week after week for a little bit now. We're not hitting quite every Psalm in the book of Psalms, but we're trying to get a flavor, a sense of the kinds of Psalms that are found in the book of Psalms, and we come this morning to Psalm 84. Before we read that together, let me pray one more time. Our Father, we thank you for uh, your love. We thank you for the gift of your Son. We thank you for your Word. We thank you that you have not left us to ourselves, to our own imaginations, but you've given us your Word that we might know you, know your Son, know your Gospel, know your grace, uh, know your plan, uh, know your will. And Father, we pray that you would help us now uh, as we read Psalm 84 and think about it together. We pray that you would speak to us, that you would uh, give us humble hearts to receive what is here in Psalm 84. We pray that you would encourage us, uh, that you would strengthen us as we feed on your word, uh, that you would fill us with your spirit to those ends. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Psalm 84. To the choir master, according to the Giddith, a psalm of the sons of Korah. How lovely is your dwelling place, O Lord of hosts! My soul longs, yes, faints for the courts of the Lord. My heart and flesh sing for joy to the living God. Even the sparrow finds a home, and the swallow a nest for herself, where she may lay her young. At your altars, O Lord of hosts, my King and my God. Blessed are those who dwell in your house, ever singing your praise. Selah. Blessed are those whose strength is in you, in whose heart are the highways to Zion. As they go through the valley of Baca, they make it a place of springs. The early rain also covers it with pools. They go from strength to strength. Each one appears before God in Zion. O Lord God of hosts, hear my prayer. Give ear, O God of Jacob. Selah. Behold our shield, O God. Look on the face of your anointed. For a day in your courts is better than a thousand elsewhere. I would rather be a doorkeeper in the house of my God than dwell in the tents of wickedness. For the Lord God is a sun and shield. The Lord bestows favor and honor. No good thing does he withhold from those who walk uprightly. O Lord of hosts, blessed is the one who trusts in you. Well, I remember when my mom and brother uh, dropped me off at art school uh, after unloading the car of the very few earthly possessions that I had. I said goodbye to them in the parking lot and walked back to my dorm room, and I immediately felt homesick. And uh, I don't know how else to describe it. It, it, it was this visceral, gut-level feeling. It's that feeling you get when you realize uh, that uh, I've just done something with innumerable consequences and it can't be undone. Uh, maybe it was a feeling of dread. I'm not exactly sure. I knew I was completely and utterly alone in a new city where I had never lived. I knew no one. I had no one to hang out with, no place to go. And I don't actually remember what I did next. Uh, but it's those kinds of situations where you think, I just want to go home. 
I want to go someplace familiar, someplace comfortable, someplace I'm wanted and welcomed and loved. You know, this world both is and is not our home. This world is our home because God created it for us. Uh, God made the world. He, he dug out a little garden. He named it Eden. He placed Adam and Eve in it. And there God met with them in the garden. That was their home. Uh, that was the place that they were loved. It was paradise. And then sin happened. And God's children were more devoted to their own self-aggrandizement than they were to their father. They showed that they would cross any boundary to get what they wanted. They were willing to ally with the devil, literally, to pursue their own agenda. They viewed God as a rival, not the gracious father that he was. And so they stole and lied and blamed. The father's hand of discipline fell, exile from Eden. Adam and Eve were cast out of God's presence. They were still in the world, but they were no longer home. Suddenly, mixed with the Father's love, they knew his anger and his wrath and his curse. Many of the the, the great Renaissance artists painted scenes of Adam and Eve leaving the garden. You can see the horror, the weeping, the regret on their faces, their heads in their hands, tears on their cheeks. There was a mercy here, by the way. God had said, in the day that you eat of the forbidden tree, you will die. And while they did begin to experience death, God's judgment was mixed with mercy, and Adam and Eve lived, though east of Eden. This world is not our home. Our home is in the Father's presence. And yes, God is everywhere, but God is also remote, it seems, or it feels. We are not in Eden anymore. This morning, we're going to talk about life as a pilgrimage toward our home. And uh, you can see in your bulletin, there are four points. Uh, We're going to talk about the pilgrimage of Jesus, our longing for home, finding strength in the valley, and blessings on the doorstep. And if I could summarize what we're going to talk about this morning, it's in some ways straightforward. We're going to see that Jesus... Enter the valley of weeping, that we might dwell in the courts of the Lord. Therefore, we should keep our eyes on our destination, and it will give us hope in trials and focus in temptations. So first, let's talk about the pilgrimage of Jesus. Uh, Our psalm this morning is a pilgrimage psalm. Uh, It divides fairly nicely at the two selahs, right? Remember, those are musical terms, which uh, probably mean something like pause and consider here. Uh, In the first section, verses 1 through 4, the psalmist expresses his longing for God's house, God's presence. In the second section, verses 5 through 8, he describes the journey, a journey that's often full of trouble, but at the same time, a journey that can be full of hope. And finally, then, in in verses 9 through 12, the psalm uh, tells us that even though uh, the psalmist has not arrived, he's not in the house, even still, even the Father's present blessing was better than the delights of the wicked. The psalmist was one who longs for God's presence, journeys to God's presence, and finds joy even in the anticipation 
of God's presence. His whole life is oriented toward coming into the presence of God in the temple. You see, this, this is where uh, God's people met, or God met with his people uh, post-Eden. Though God had exiled humanity from the garden, he himself longed for restoration as much as or even more than they did. God brought Israel out of slavery in Egypt. He brought them to himself at Sinai. And then he instructed Moses how to build a, a portable Eden, as it were, a new meeting place. God would again dwell in the midst of his people. And so our psalmist is right to long. But of course, if you know how the story goes, you read through the Old Testament, Israel doesn't fare much better than Adam and Eve. Oh, that the temporary tabernacle is eventually replaced with a more permanent temple, but even the temple wasn't so permanent. Israel acted little different from their father Adam, and God destroyed the temple and sent them too into exile, this time exile into Babylon. Israel's sin, like Adam before her, had brought distance, and Israel was removed from God's presence. The temple was eventually rebuilt, you may know, but on the surface everything seemed okay, but nothing had really changed. Israel worshipped God with their lips, but their hearts were still far from Him. And it seemed like this story was just going to keep going again and again in an endless loop. But then comes the one who says, destroy this temple and I will rebuild it in three days. It's an odd statement. Uh, first of all, how could this man rebuild in three days what it had taken 46 years to build in the first place? And second of all, why would you destroy the temple yet again only to rebuild it in three days? Of course, as you may know, Jesus was not talking about the building, but about his body. He was the temple of God. He was Emmanuel, God dwelling in our midst. He was God incarnate, that is, in the flesh. You see, Jesus had done really the exact opposite of what the psalmist wanted. Jesus had left the Father's presence in heaven in order to enter the valley of Baca, the valley of weeping, the valley of pain and suffering, the valley of the shadow of death. He went to the cross and he died, which is the ultimate exile. But Jesus did not stay in exile. No, uh, destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it up, he said. And Jesus rose from the dead on the third day. And the valley of weeping had become a place of springs. And then Jesus rises from the dead and ascends to the right hand of the Father, back into the Father's presence, back into the heavenly temple. Why does he do all that? Why this, why this show, as it might appear? Why one more exile and one more return? Well, to be done with it once and for all. Jesus became a man to die and rise for men, that we might no longer have to face exile and death as a judicial judgment for sin, but might be given the hope of of resurrection life, dwelling in our Father's presence forever. See, Jesus is the, the representative for God's people who faces exile for us, that we might only know God's smiling presence. And once in heaven, Jesus pours out His Spirit, the Holy Spirit of God, that even though we are not physically present in heaven with Him, He might be spiritually present on earth with us. Jesus entered the valley of weeping, that we might dwell in the courts of the Lord, even that the courts of the Lord might dwell in us in the meantime. 
You see, now we are the temple of God. We are the temple of the Holy Spirit. God's Spirit dwells in us. We are God's dwelling place, His house. The church, as inglorious as we may appear, is the dwelling place of the glory of God on earth, even as we anticipate the dwelling with God face to face in the new creation. So now what? Well, keep your eyes on the destination, and it will give you hope in trials and focus in temptation. Uh, second, longing, our longing for home. Keep your eyes on the destination. I, I'm not much of a world traveler, but most of you know the Berries, uh, John and Linda, were just mentioned a moment ago, and they, they, they are real world travelers. Uh, if you visit their home, uh, they have pictures and artifacts from every continent on the globe. And you can imagine what it is like to get ready for a big trip, a world-wide trip. Uh, you pour over the travel guides, or I guess the travel websites. Uh, you, you get to know a bit about the country and the people and the food and the music. And as you hear about it, your excitement grows. You can't wait to visit. You maybe haven't even packed yet, but, but you can't wait to get on the plane. There's this longing, right? This desire to be and to see and to experience. Of course, there's probably a similar longing once you've been there for about two weeks. <laughs> you haven't been in your own bed. And you're ready to get home. You've had a lot of fun, but you're tired. And you just want to be home again. Right? To long to visit uh, to long to see, to long to experience, to long to be home. Right? Those are all very, a very normal part of life. And yet, I think some of us have stopped longing. We don't expect to go somewhere great. We aren't longing for home. We have settled. Right? Some of us think that this present existence with all of its humdrum days is all there is. And yet, not so the psalmist. The psalmist bursts out in verses 1 and 2. How lovely is your dwelling place, O Lord of hosts. My soul longs, yes, faints for the courts of the Lord. My heart and flesh sing for joy to the living God. The psalmist longs for God's house. Not the building, mind you, but for God's presence. God is there. And so he longs. His heart and flesh, right, his body and soul join in. And uh, the King James Version and, and the NIV probably get it right here when they translate the end of verse 2, my heart and flesh cry out for the living God. The psalmist here is not so much talking about singing so much as yearning. The same word is uh, it's found in Proverbs chapter 1, verse 20, where it says, wisdom cries aloud in the streets. And that's what's going on here. The psalmist is crying aloud for God. In verse 3, we see the psalmist is, is jealous, kind of, jealous of the birds. Even the sparrow finds a home, and the swallow a nest for herself, where she may lay her young at your altars, O Lord of hosts, my King and my God. This is the language of love, right? To, to wish you were a sparrow so you could nest in the house of God. And then verse 4, blessed are those who dwell in your house, ever singing your praise. Why is it so special? What's so great about the temple? Psalm 27, verse 4, the psalmist there says, One thing have I asked of the Lord, that will I seek after, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord and to inquire in his temple. 
What's so great, great about dwelling in the house of the Lord? Well, it's gazing upon the beauty of the Lord. What's so great about going home? Well, your family's there, your loved ones. I realized this a few years ago when I went back to Baltimore for a funeral. And I was in the town I grew up in, but I stayed in a hotel. I stayed in a hotel because most of my immediate family had moved away. And so this place was no longer my home. It didn't have the attraction it once did. I wouldn't go back there because I couldn't go back there and be surrounded by my loved ones because they weren't there. They head up and moved away. What made the temple so attractive? God was there. God dwelling in the midst of his people. And now, okay, we say, well, God wasn't really living in a building, was he? Well, uh, no and yes. No building can contain God, that is true. But God says he caused his name to dwell there. His glory filled the tabernacle. God manifested himself there in a unique way. He promised Israel, there I will meet with you. What makes the church so special? Now, I don't want to be mean, but it ain't us. God is in our midst. And yet even now we know there is more to come. We want to see him face to face. We know that he indwells us by his spirit, but we want to stand in his presence. Do you long to see him? It's so easy to settle, right? To not lift your eyes above what they can see. To think that dust and sweat are all there is to life. But scripture would have us long Long to dwell in God's house. Long to see him face to face. Long to experience his presence in fullness. Don't settle. Long, yes, faint for the courts of the Lord. So we've talked about the pilgrimage of Jesus and our longing for home. Third, finding strength in the valley. See, God's presence, our destination, gives us strength in the valley. Now, why do we need strength? Well, verse 6 talks about the valley of Baca. Uh, The Hebrew word for Baca refers to a kind of tree, uh, but it also sounds like the Hebrew word for weeping. We have a tree like that in North America. It's called the the weeping willow. If I were to refer to the valley of the weeping willows, uh, you could probably figure out that I was poetically referring to a place of sadness or sorrow. Psalm 23, of course, calls it the valley of the shadow of death. But this is where we live, the valley of weeping. The old translations uh, put it the veil of tears. But you likely know that. I, I don't need to convince you that we live in a place of sorrow. You feel it every day, from little disappointments to life shattering heartbreaks. We don't need the psalmist to convince us that we are living in the valley of weeping. What we need the psalmist to tell us is where to find strength in the valley. Verse 5 reads like this. Blessed are those whose strength is in you, in whose heart are the highways to Zion. 
Blessed are those whose strength is in you, in whose heart are the highways. The, the idea is something like no matter where they are for these Israelites, their heart is always headed to the temple. They, they drew strength to press on from the thought of being in God's presence. Their heart was there, headed to the temple at every moment. Whether they were you know, harvesting wheat or caring for their cattle, it didn't matter. Their heart was headed to the temple. For us, though Jesus has ascended into heaven, he has given us his spirit. And the Holy Spirit in us acts as a kind of GPS, right? Reorienting our hearts toward the temple, toward the heavenly temple. It's not just that our feet are on the path to God, but that that path is in our hearts, in our souls, in our bones. And this brings us back to our longing for this place, our longing for the courts of the Lord, our longing for the house of our God. It's this longing that drives us on and gives us strength. We have no strength in ourselves, no strength for this journey. We would as soon give up. The valley of weeping would overtake us. The shadow of death would kill all glimmer of hope, except that the Spirit is in us, reminding us there are good things to come. There are treasures in heaven. The new creation has begun in the resurrection of Jesus. Your Father will wipe away every tear. You will see Him face to face. And the destination gives us hope, and the hope gives us strength. And it radically shapes our experience of the valley. Look at verse 6. Verse 6 again says, As they go through the valley of Baca, they make it a place of springs. The early rain also covers it with pools. How do the pilgrims, they make it a place of springs. How do the pilgrims transform the place of pilgrimage? Well, I, there are two possibilities here, I guess. One is internal, right? That our longing, our hope, the strength that God has given us means that despite walking through the valley, it is as if we are in a place of springs because our hope brings us joy in the midst of the darkness. We find joy in the valley of weeping because we know where we're headed. That's one possibility. The second possibility would be external, right? That because of our longing, because of our hope, because of the strength that God has given us, we actually cause the world around us to flourish just a little bit brighter. Because we are part of the coming new creation where, where we go, we bring the blessing of new creation with us. That the spirit who is in us, Jesus says, flows through us as rivers of living waters. And though we are in the valley of weeping, we actually become a blessing to those around us who weep. How would that happen? Why would that be the case? Well, because we, we, we can weep with them without being overcome. You see, if you have no hope, to weep with those who weep is to be overwhelmed by the sorrows in this life. But we have hope. We have hope, and so we can weep with those who weep and mourn with those who mourn and not be overcome because we know what's coming. And we can act in hope. We can act in confidence in the moment, however bad it might seem, that this moment is not the end. And so I can press on with confidence that this isn't it. This isn't over. God's not done yet. And of course, we can offer hope. We can offer hope to those around us. We can say there is an end to our journey. There is this destination, and you too can be on this journey. You too can be headed toward the courts of the Lord. You don't have to stay here in the valley of weeping. 
And so we make the valley of weeping a place of springs. The place of sorrow becomes a place of hope. Verse 7 says that these travelers, they go from strength to strength. Each one appears before God in Zion. See, our hope spurs us on more and more. And it, it is like looking at travel websites, right? And getting more and more excited about the trip. My soul longs, yes, faints for the courts of the Lord. I, I've got to go. I'm compelled to keep my eyes on glory. And then verse 8 says, O Lord God of hosts, hear my prayer. Give ear, O God of Jacob. What's the prayer? It's the prayer of longing. The prayer of, of crying out to the living God. God, let me be among those who appear before you in Zion. This world is a veil of tears. and There is much to weep. And it's easy to succumb, right? It's easy to be overcome with sorrow. But strength is found as Jesus, who has gone through the valley before us and entered into the Father's presence in the resurrection. Strength is found as Jesus pours out his spirit on us like living water to reorient our hearts to Zion, to give us longing and hope. And it is that longing for our heavenly home which drives us on and gives us strength. Not only to experience God's blessing, to know that he will care for us, but to bless, right? To, to mourn with those who mourn and to give them a glimmer of hope in the shadow of death because of the good things that come for God's children. The pilgrimage of Jesus, our longing for home, finding strength in the valley, and fourth, blessings on the doorstep. God's presence, right? God's uh, presence in heaven, our destination, the new creation, the resurrection, right? That gives us focus in the midst of temptations. Uh, as we talk about longing and hope and heaven, uh, it, it, it's actually easy for us to become discouraged. Uh, you might think, okay, Luke, you talk so much about heaven and God's blessing on his people right, to come, but what about now? What about this moment? Uh, the people around me seem to be having a good time. Why would I give up present delights for future heavenly ones? I mean, why get up on Sunday morning and drag myself out of bed and come and listen to some guy talk and talk and talk when I could sleep in? I mean, I could be in bed right now. And if I could sleep in, that means Saturday night I could stay out late. I could party with the world. Why focus on the future? when I could have my goodies in the moment. I, I listened to this talk on self-control this week, and I don't think I've ever been excited about self-control before. Anybody been excited about self-control before? Yeah, not so much. Uh, but I was so moved by this talk, I, I actually listened to it twice. And the basic premise was this, the, the essence of wisdom is self-control, uh, the ability to discern the difference between right and wrong and choose the right and enjoy it. And when we lose that ability to exercise self-control, we become animals who act by instinct rather than discernment. And that made me think of the story of Jacob and Esau. Uh, maybe you know the, the, the story of Jacob and Esau. Esau was a hairy man who lived outdoors like an animal. Jacob lived in tents. Jacob is cooking stew one day and Esau bursts in hungry as a dog and says, give me some of that red stuff. Jacob, always looking for an opportunity, says, sell me your birthright. And Esau responds, I'm about to die. Of what use is a birthright to me? Do you see Esau's failure? It's really probably twofold or more. Uh, but the first is he, he fails to see the long game. 
He sells his birthright for a cup of soup because he's hungry. And second, he fails to trust God to provide. What does he say? I'm about to die. Now, he wasn't about to die. He was tired from being out in the fields, but he wasn't about to die. Have you ever noticed how we exaggerate our trials? Ah, I can't take it one more moment. Now, Jacob, if he was a little more selfless, might have said to his brother, okay, calm down, Esau. It's not as bad as all that. God will care for you as he did for our father Abraham in the famine. Remember that earlier in the book of Genesis? But of course, Jacob sees his opportunity and he takes it. The, the psalmist has no interest in selling his birthright for a bowl of soup. He's done his cost-benefit analysis, as it were, and here's what he's determined in verse 10. For a day in your courts is better than a thousand elsewhere. I would rather be a doorkeeper in the house of my God than to dwell in the tents of the wicked. First, there's this value comparison, right? Uh, one day in God's house is better than a thousand anywhere else. Why? Well, well, again, the psalmist knows God is there. God is there. There's no comparison. But second, there's this curious phrase, I, I would rather be a doorkeeper in the house of my God than dwell in the tents of the wicked. We're in the tense of wickedness. Now, I don't, I don't want to ruin anybody's favorite verse, uh, but the phrase, be a doorkeeper in the house of my God, um, the commentary suggests is probably better translated the way the NASB translates it, which is, I would rather stand at the threshold of the house of my God, um, or I would rather live on the doorstep of the house of my God than dwell in the tents of the wicked. Uh, the, the verse is not about vocation, but about proximity. Right? The psalmist is saying, I would rather be close to God's house than to be in the house of the wicked. And I think that message is, is actually what we need to hear because though the church is in a sense, right, we are the house of God, the temple of the Holy Spirit, we are still longing for God's house. The heavenly temple, the new Jerusalem, the new creation when we will dwell with God face to face. You see, we are not in God's house in fullness. We're on the doorstep. Though God's house is in us, as it were, we are not yet in God's house. We live on the doorstep. Though we already experience the temple through the church, we do not yet experience the temple in fullness. We live uh, in what theologians call the overlap of the ages, right? We live in the already and the not yet. We have begun to experience God's blessings, but we have not yet experienced them in fullness. And so we long for that fullness. By pouring out the Spirit on the church, we have come to the very threshold of the house of God, but we have not yet entered. And we will not enter in fullness until the resurrection. And the question is, then, why would we be content to live on one person's doorstep when you could live in someone else's house? I would rather live on the doorstep of the house of my God than to dwell in the tents of the wicked. Well, besides what we've been saying again and again, that God is there, which is really the ultimate answer, look at verse 11. Verse 11 says, For the Lord God is a sun and shield. The Lord bestows favor and honor. No good thing does he withhold from those who walk uprightly. 
The Lord God is a sun and shield. He offers provision and protection. He bestows favor and honor, grace and glory. The living God holds out his unearned, undeserved favor, his friendship, his love, and honor and glory. Now, uh, God, what this means is God is not like a middle school student. You know, in middle school, uh, in order to gain glory, I must take it from someone else. I have to be faster, smarter, funnier, right? I have to outdo you. That's how I get glory. If I have to, I'll put you down to raise myself up. In that scenario, I look good because you look bad. That's not the way it is with God. He bestows glory and honor on his children. And the more glory he gives away, the better he looks. In heaven, we, all, we, we won't all sit around dressed in rags, beholding the glory of the Lord. No, we are even now clothed in the glory of Christ. And in heaven, that will be for all to see. Paul talks about God crowning his children. Because our glory will only magnify the glory of our God and Father. Won't take away from it. Why would we rather live on the doorstep of God than dwell in the tents of the wicked? Because no good thing does he withhold from those who walk uprightly. Uh, walk uprightly there, of course, doesn't mean uh, those who get it all right. That's not what it's saying. Uh, we're all broken people. We fail daily. We are more sinful than we would like to admit. But it means that God withholds no good thing from those who are committed to him with a whole heart. Again, not, not perfectly, of course, don't go there, right? That's our kind of legalistic mindset coming in and posing itself on the text. Not perfectly, but truly. And are you committed to your father? Or are you committed to the tense of wickedness? Right? Where's your heart? There's a lot going on in the tense of wickedness. Tents of wickedness do have something to offer, right? It's easy to get sucked in by the glitz and the glamour and the sparkle but blessed is the one who trusts in the Lord of hosts. Keep your eyes on him and the tents will lose their appeal. Right? Which tents have an appeal for you? Where, where do you hear the voice of the wicked beckoning you to come in here? Right? What, what pleasures, what temptations in this age have hold of your heart and beckon you, call you, pull you into their tents? The only thing strong enough to overcome that appeal is knowing that at God's right hand are pleasures forevermore. That we have a king who lavishes gifts on his children, caring for them in this life and into the life to come. That in Christ we have received every spiritual blessing and in the life to come, resurrection life in the Father's presence. We experience his blessings on the doorstep even as we long to enter his house for the feast. And so remember that Jesus entered the valley of weeping, that we might dwell in the courts of the Lord. Keep your eyes on that destination. And it will give you hope in trials, focus in temptation. Blessed are all who trust in him. Let's pray. Our Father, we do pray that you would help us to keep our eyes on you, to keep our eyes on 
Christ seated at your right hand, having entered into your presence and sat down. Help us to remember that where he is there, we will also be. That in one sense, we're there now. We're united to him, and yet we await the fullness of that. Help us to long. Help us to hope. Help us to yearn. Help us to cry out. Oh, that we would dwell in the courts of the Lord. That we would be in our Father's presence. That we would gaze upon the beauty of the Lord. That we would see you face to face. Father, let that longing and yearning fill our hearts and guide our feet. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.